Good morning. Today marks our first church service together in the new season of Lent. And while this season's precise origin intent resides in the murky waters of early church history, the first clear reference to Lent is from the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. This council cemented Lent as an official season of the Christian journey and established it as the period of 40 days prior to Easter Sunday. The 40 days of Lent commemorate the 40 days of Jesus who survived in the wilderness after John baptized him, which in turn commemorates the 40 years the Israelites survived in the wilderness after God liberated them from the sin of slavery. About 25 years after Nicaea integrated Lent into Christian practice, Bishop Cyril of Jerusalem, speaking to potential new converts of Christianity, cited Lent as a season of preparation for baptism on Easter Sunday. He said, you have a long period of grace, 40 days of repentance. By the time St. Augustine wrote about Lent, people throughout the religion of Christianity participated in the season of preparation on an annual basis, whether they had been baptized or not. Today, most Christians think of Lent as a period of time in which practitioners give up chocolate or alcohol or gambling or sex or something else fun. And at its worst, I've heard Christians abstain from these pleasures for the seasons of Lent because they believe these joys are built on a foundation of sin. Racked with guilt, Christians shamefully go through the laborious motions of Lent because they believe that this is the person without these pleasures that God wants them to be all the time. My friends, this theology is problematic. Because the belief that the things in life which are the most pleasurable are inherently sinful will always lead the believer into a suspicion of joy. We must always remember that God gave us this human existence as a gift to be enjoyed, not a test to be passed. And while I have heard about these first Christians who give up these things for this reason, I have also heard of Christians who give up chocolate, or alcohol, or gambling, or sex, or something else fun for the season of Lent for an entirely different reason. They give up these things they enjoy to stand in solidarity with Jesus and the time he spent in the wilderness. By abstaining from these pleasures, which are becoming more and more ubiquitous by the day, these Christians hope that they will be able to look at life and look at themselves with a fresh new perspective. As my mentor and friend, Pastor Kim Krogstad says, Lent is a season of self-examination. During this season, we are encouraged to tell the truth about ourselves and about the God who loves us. And then to make sure we don't miss the point, she adds, the and is the most important word in that sentence. Lent is a season in which we journey inward, we hold up a mirror, we reflect on our mistakes, we remember our wounds, we contemplate the generosity we received and we ask ourselves how we can change, how we can grow, how we can make amends, and how our pain has shaped us, and how we are working to make this world a better place, without ever forgetting that we are completely and unconditionally loved by our Creator. That, my friends, is Lent at its best. If giving up pleasure or indulgence for 40 days helps you to be more honest with yourself and inspires you to more fully trust the love of God, then by all means, go ahead and give those pleasures up. But we must never confuse the ends of Lent with the means of Lent. 
And for the next 40 days, the people of Paradox are committed to the sacred act of self-examination and the faithful trust in God's love. So let us begin this inward journey by discussing the inspiration of this season, the story of Jesus Christ living in the wilderness for 40 days. However, we need to go back way in the, in the back part of history to understand the weight of the historical and religious context influencing this story. But I promise we will get to the temptations of Jesus a little while later in this teaching. About 3,500 years ago, the descendants of Israel were enslaved by the Egyptian empire. For 400 years, they labored without compensation, they gritted through the sharp pains of oppression, and they cried out to God in desperation. God heard their prayers, and with a mighty and miraculous hand, God delivered the gift of freedom to a weary and worn down people. God led them out of the land of Egypt and into the wilderness, which, in case you are wondering, is the absolute brownest part of the map behind me. God guided the Israelites through the desert with a solemn oath that one day, God would eventually lead them into a promised land to call their own. This time in the desert lasted for 40 long years. As nomads, the Israelites constructed the tabernacle, an equally sacred and mobile home for God. Upon its completion, God descended in the form of a cloud on the tent-like structure and gave the tabernacle meaning, beauty, and weight. Speaking from the innermost chamber of the tabernacle, God called Moses and laid out how the Israelites can appropriately thank the divine for their blessings and also how they can be forgiven for their sins in the eyes of God. If the person who committed the sin is rich, they must bring a bull to the tabernacle, lay it on the altar, then lay their hands on the bull, transferring their sins to the bull, and then sacrificing the bull on their behalf. If the person who has sinned is in the middle class, they must bring a lamb. And if the person is poor, then they must bring a dove. While this practice may seem primitive or barbaric to our modern ears, these rules were an ethical step forward in human consciousness. In an era before practicing counselors and therapists, this religious process gave people a way to make peace with their feelings of guilt and shame and fear in a healthy way. Once they offered the sacrifice, they could move on with their life, confident that they were forgiven and loved by their creator. This entire religious ceremony occurred at the tabernacle, with its altar and its basin and inner chambers and more. And this house of God was always located at the center of the Israelites' encampment as they moved about the wilderness. About 350 years after they built the tabernacle for the first time, the descendants of the Israelite nomads lived in the land that God promised them. As they prospered in influence and in power, they established Jerusalem as their capital city. From high up in his palace, Solomon, the king of the Israel nation, looked out upon his new gleaming city and realized the inadequacy of God still calling a mobile tent God's home. Solomon commissioned a brick-and-mortar home for God and, after seven tedious and expensive years, built a temple that was considered to be one of the great, stunning, and opulent architectural achievements in all of human history. However, by our modern engineering standards today, Solomon's temple would be considered quite pedestrian. Upon completion of the temple, 
God in a grand gesture descended upon the temple in a cloud solidifying God's permanent residence among the citizens of Jerusalem. All of the offerings designed to express gratitude and to absolve people from sin would now be carried out in Jerusalem in the courtyard of God's immobile and immaculate palace. Over the next 950 years, Solomon's temple will be destroyed by the Babylonians, rebuilt by the people of Judah with help from the Persians, desecrated by the Greeks, reclaimed by the Hasmoneans, and then completely refreshed and renovated under the tyrannical rule and high taxation rates of the Roman Empire. As every homeowner knows, renovations are expensive. And while every male in Judea paid a mandatory temple tax to keep all religious functioning running, the temple employed an immoral strategy to bolster their coffers and pay for this extravagant refresh. The strategy incorporated unreasonably stringent requirements on all bulls, doves, and lambs that were to be sacrificed upon God's official altar in Jerusalem. They declared, the temple declared, that God deserved only the best and the most pure and only the most unblemished livestock as tribute. These strict requirements disqualified just about every animal grown on a local family farm or purchased outside the walls of the temple in Jerusalem. To compensate for these overbearing regulations, the temple conveniently began to sell pre-approved bulls, pre-approved lambs, and pre-approved doves, which practitioners of the faith could purchase at the temple gates. Of course, the temple significantly marked up the price on these pre-approved animals for sacrifice. The great scholar William Barclay wrote, the price of a pair of doves sold inside the temple could be as much as 15 times the price that might be paid outside the temple. This factor of 15 is staggering, but the stagger quickly becomes, transforms into heartbreak when we consider that the sacrificing of doves was exclusively the sacrificial animal of the poor. If you feel angry about this exploitation, you would be justified in this emotion, but you would also not be the first person to feel that way. When all of this is going on, a Jewish man named John became so angry that he protested the injustice in a brilliant and innovative way. John left the temple in Jerusalem and its official system of sin forgiveness, and he traveled east to the banks of the Jordan River, a 60-mile-long river flowing from the Sea of Galilee down to the depths of the Dead Sea. Here at the Jordan, John offered a new way of forgiving one's sins. Independent of finances or institutions or sacred texts. And instead, this process of forgiveness was based on the idea that God's forgiveness should be available to all. John baptized people in the water, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The great Richard Rohr wrote about John's protest this way When the temple priesthood started making God distant and elite, John just went down to the riverside and poured natural water over shamed bodies. What started as a protest became a movement, and large crowds from around Judea made a pilgrimage to the desert to seek forgiveness for their sins and to make peace with God, free from any financial burden. This context completely changes the story of Jesus seeking out John at the Jordan River. Given the choice between maintaining religious tradition or standing in solidarity with the protest on behalf of the poor, 
Jesus of Nazareth, an unknown Jewish man, chose the poor. He asked John for a baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and John placed his hand on Jesus and lowered him into the water. Immediately, the sky ripped open, light burst from the heavens, the Holy Spirit transfigured into a dove and flapped vigorously, and a strong, confident voice rang out from on high, you are my beloved, my own, on you my favor rests. In my entire life, I have never witnessed anything like this. This sensational scene implores us to pause and ask the question, if you saw the heavens open up to reveal a supernatural dove dive-bombing toward the earth as the voice of God began to speak, then what would you do next? There is only one answer in today's world. All of us would reach into our pocket or purse, pull out our cell phone, and tap record. This is the human posture of wonder in 2024. Now, someone might object, and they might tell me from their position on top of their high horse, they might look down their nose and say to me, no way, man, I totally would leave my cell phone in my pocket and just live in the moment. <laughs> to you, I would say, come down from your high horse, young man. I know you would record this scene because your friends would not allow you to hear the end of it. Every time you told one of your friends what you saw about heaven's opening and doves descending and God speaking, every last one of your friends would say, but did you record it? And you'd spend the rest of your life answering why you failed to record the voice of God as your friends only half believe you. I, for one, welcome the little blue screen in front of our face as our official posture of wonder. I welcome it because I know fighting it is hopeless. And as much as I would love to tell you that I possess the spiritual maturity to not record the supernatural action of the divine, I know I'd want to share the voice of God with my friends and family and the wonder I once saw. This desire to share is not a bad impulse to have. I point all of this out because if we put ourselves in an ancient mindset, obviously the people who witnessed this miraculous event did not possess cell phones to record this event. However, their desire to run and tell others about what they saw firsthand is the same desire that we feel today, to share wonder that we experience with others. However, the Holy Spirit, which was most likely still in dove form at this point in the story, drove Jesus out into the wilderness, the same wilderness that the ancestors of Jesus wandered in for 40 years. Jesus stays in the wilderness for 40 days. Clearly, the author of the gospel, Mark, wants the reader to draw a connection between Jesus' time in the wilderness and the Israelites in the wilderness as well. Well, the Gospel of Matthew remembers this time in the desert in a way where the devil appears and speaks to Jesus and then tempts Jesus with food and pride and power. And the Gospel of Luke recalls this story in a similar fashion, minus the temptation of power. The Gospel of Mark, which is the Gospel we are currently studying, feels this 40-day-long story can be summed up perfectly in one and a half sentences. And Jesus remained in the wilderness for 40 days and was tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts, and the angels looked after him. And then in the very next line of the text, Mark casually says, after John's arrest. What? John? Arrested? For dunking poor people in a public river? Was this really a crime? Well, yes, according to the government of his day. Because John threatened the income of an entire religious system, 
a religious system which was behind the scenes overseen and propped up by the Roman Empire. Not only that, but later on in the gospel, we discovered John also spoke out against the immoral divorces, remarriages, and then murders of the local authority, King Herod Agrippa, the same king who oversaw and ordered John's arrest. So here you have a story which in our day would be the equivalent of the church and the state working cooperatively to bring down a man who spent his life energy working to bring the peace and to bring hope to the poor. A man who refused to stay silent while the royals committed murder and the legal system turned a blind eye. As an engaged reader, this should inspire all of us to ask a question in our minds. If the church and state work together to arrest someone you admire who stood up for justice, spoke truth to power, and lovingly cared for the poor, then what would you do next? And while we can all discuss hypothetically what each of us would do, this was a very real question for Jesus of Nazareth. Remember, Jesus sought out John. He asked to be baptized by John. And while the Gospel of Luke refers to Jesus and John as cousins, there is no such mention of blood relation in any other Gospel. This is significant because when I read Mark's Gospel, I am left with a strong impression that John is older than Jesus. Reading between the lines, Jesus in Mark's Gospel views John as a hero, views John as a mentor, and views John as a role model. As Mark tells the story, Jesus is baptized by John, and then Jesus heads to the desert, and when Jesus returns from the desert, 40 days later, John is gone, and Jesus learns of his arrest. So what does Jesus do next when he finds out this beautiful man has been arrested by a corrupt government and religious system? Well, Jesus travels to Galilee, the region around the northern sea of Judea, and in Galilee, there are a number of small fishing villages, and it was here, just days after John's arrest, that Jesus began his life earth-altering work. We read, after John's arrest, Jesus appeared in Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. This is the time of fulfillment. The reign of God is at hand. Change your hearts and minds and believe this good news. Now, a few moments ago, we asked the question, what would we do next if the church and the state worked together to bring down an innocent man? How many of you answered, I would go to the nearest village and tell everyone that God is very near to us, and this time, this time is the time of fulfillment, telling everyone how great life is? I most certainly did not answer that question that way. This is not what I would have done. I would have cried, I would have sat down, and I would have sat in quiet reflection. I would have run away. It's like this sobering reality of John's arrest would not lead me into the villages to proclaim good news, but instead would lead me into the wilderness, the very place Jesus had just come back from. Come to think of it, we also asked what we would do if we saw the baptism of Jesus and heard the voice of God firsthand. We discussed how we would take a video with our phones so that we could share this divine revelation with our friends. And if I lived in first century Judea and witnessed this supernatural scene, I can imagine that I would run straight from Jesus' baptism into the nearest village I could find, and I would say things like, this is the time of fulfillment. The reign of God is at hand. Change your hearts and minds and believe this good news. 
But after hearing the voice of God, Jesus does not rush into the villages. Jesus instead retreats into the wilderness. Well, I wouldn't have done that either. I feel like I would have done the exact opposite of what Jesus did in both situations. When I look closely at this story, I am struck by the counterintuitive progression of events as I realize that this story is entirely backwards. My friends, I have learned to pay close attention to the moments in Scripture when events unfold in a backward nature because the gospel of Jesus Christ is a backwards message. And while I've heard, the, heard and read the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness hundreds of times in my life, reading this story exclusively from Mark's very brief perspective invited me to see just how backwards all of this story was and how that backwards nature is very much in line with the message at the center of the gospel. Allow me to explain. Imagine we could completely map out our lives on a mathematical graph. As we move from left to right on the graph, we see the timeline of all of the events of your life. In the positive realm of the graph are the blessings we receive, and in the negative sector of the graph are all of the sufferings we bear. Now, this is an oversimplification, but on this graph, if we could map out our lives, I believe that our lives would resemble something like a sine wave. The time we have been given on this earth is saturated with experiences of blessing and also saturated with experiences of suffering. Growing up, the church taught me that all the suffering I personally encounter and all the suffering in human history were the direct result of our ancestors' earliest sin. In other words, I was taught that we deserve all of the pain, all of the oppression, and all of the cruelty that is so prevalent in the human condition. But, the church continued, if I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, then the good news of the gospel is that Jesus would take my life from looking like this and turn my life into this. And when I asked the church how long it would take for Jesus Christ to eliminate all of the suffering of my life, the answer always came back the same. Soon, Craig, soon. Well, if I'm lucky, I'm about halfway done with my life on this earth now. I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior a long time ago, and my testimony to all of you today is this. Jesus Christ, did not eliminate my suffering. Can I get a hallelujah? <laughs> As an ordained minister of the gospel of a Christian church who holds multiple advanced degrees in religious studies, who studies the Bible for hours on end, and who leads communities in prayer, I can honestly say before all of you that my life does not look like this. My life looks like this. My life is my life looks like this, and this is what I encounter on a daily reality. Now, if all of this sounds backwards to you, then we are really starting to cook with this story about the temptations of Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus Christ's sole purpose was to take our life from looking like this sine wave and eliminate the lower half of the graph, then wouldn't the story of the Gospel of Mark read, after John's arrest, Jesus flew to John's prison cell and liberated John by melting the prison around him with laser beams from his eyeballs? As ridiculous as this alternate reading may sound, this is the kind of behavior I would expect from a son of God whose primary purpose for existing is to eliminate suffering. Now, if we tone down the language a few notches, I believe that if the, the primary work of Jesus was to eliminate suffering, 
he would have gone to the villages in Galilee and said, I bring good news. I am going to Jerusalem to break John out of prison. But this is not what Jesus Christ says after John's arrest. Instead, Jesus says, this is the time of fulfillment. The reign of God is at hand. Really, Jesus? This time? Right now is my t- the time? Because this time is not here on the graph. This time is the time of John's arrest. This time is down here on the graph. Do you realize what this means? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that God meets us here. In the lowest points of our suffering. Even at this moment, when the world feels at its most hopeless, Jesus tells us, you know what time it is? The time of fulfillment. This is the moment when God's reign is at hand. What must never be forgotten in the story of John's arrest is how the story right before it is one of extraordinary blessing. The baptism of Jesus with the beauty of the sky opening and the wonder of a living bird in flight and the sound of an unexpected transcendent voice is at the highest point of one's blessings in life. On our graph, this baptism and the reaction of the cosmos would be up here, right? Now let's assume that Jesus experienced this clear message from God and rather than going into the wilderness for 40 days, went straight into the towns of Galilee and said, this is the time of fulfillment. And when the villagers asked him how he knew this to be true, Jesus said, I know that life is good because just a few days ago, I heard the voice of God with my own ears and I saw the Holy Spirit as a dove with my own eyes. I believe the villagers would have heard that and said, well, that must be nice to have the voice of God tangibly validate who you are. And then in their cynicism, the villagers would say, anytime someone says the time of fulfillment is here after experiencing God, doesn't really matter. But Jesus does not go into the villages after receiving an extraordinary blessing. Jesus goes into the villages after he feels betrayed by all the systems and betrayed by all the people that are supposed to protect one another and after his mentor has been arrested. And when Jesus says this is the time of fulfillment in the face of the worst suffering imaginable, he is truly bringing good news to humankind. When Jesus declares the present is the time of the fulfillment and the present has the fingerprints of God all over it, the only reason his message has any weight at all is because of the heaviness of his own suffering. Therefore, rather than cognitively avoiding the worst suffering in our past, we should learn how to embrace it. Because if we want to honestly and fully believe and trust that this life is good and worth living, then we must be willing to include the worst of our suffering in our faith in order for our faith to have any meaning at all. My friends, please do not misunderstand me. This inclusion is not superficial, it's not sentimental. This inclusion is not dismissing our suffering by saying, well, everything happens for a reason, or by saying the Lord works in mysterious ways, or by saying I'm learning to trust in God. This inclusion is the mature ability to take a piece of chalk and draw a circle around your entire life with all of its blessings and all of its suffering and say, everything inside this circle is holy. Everything. 
And while this may sound impossible for any human being to do because suffering is so terrible on this planet, the message of Jesus Christ is, actually, it is possible. And if you follow me, I will show you how to do this over the course of your entire life. I am convinced the reason Jesus takes a backward journey into the wilderness after his baptism is because he had a firsthand experience with the divine. And in the desert, Jesus Christ goes on an inward journey of self-examination. For 40 days, he tells the truth about himself. For 40 days, he trusts God and love completely. And for 40 days, he reflects on all of the suffering in the past and how God can possibly be good and powerful and loving in the face of it all. Then, after the inward journey, he returns to the Jordan River, hears of John's arrest, and while the text does not explicitly state it, I believe Jesus grieved this injustice. And then, with one foot planted in blessing and the other foot planted in suffering, he went to the region of Galilee and proclaimed that the time of fulfillment is here. The reign of God is at hand. Change your hearts and minds and believe this good news. This spiritual maturity is only possible because of the time that Jesus spent in the desert. During this season of Lent, we join Jesus on his self-examination in the wilderness, and we strive to make peace with our suffering. We seek to understand our suffering, and we, f we try to find a way to include our suffering into our faith and our life story in an effort to love ourselves and each other. On a practical level, this survey of the soul begins in a quiet space and time by asking oneself, what suffering did I face in the past year? And as you think about all of the suffering you encountered, from something as small as the anger you felt when the light turned red, to something as large as the death of a loved one, ask yourself one by one, have I given myself enough time to grieve this loss? Have I given myself mercy for my mistakes? How can God be good when this suffering happened to me? How have I changed since this occurred? And then finally, but only after you have had enough time to grieve, you can ask the question, how is this suffering part of my life story now? A story which we believe is truly a unique and beautiful gift from God. This is not easy work. But our tradition has made time for 1,700 years for all of us to do this work because our spiritual ancestors believed that this work is necessary for healthy spirituality. And once we have made peace with the suffering we face and respond, with love, respond to that suffering with love and good news, then that, at that moment, my friends, we are following Jesus. Because Lent is a season of self-contemplation, I want to close by telling you all a story from my own life. Now, now, no matter how hard I try to avoid it, I want you to know I feel pressure to be something more than ordinary because I am a pastor. In my head, I have so much training and knowledge that I should be at, you know, one with the world, and I should be quick to forgive without fear of being taken advantage of. I should not feel anger so quickly, and I should always find a way to be happy on God's green earth. Because I can't figure out a way to be happy, that, uh, if, because if I cannot figure out a way to be happy, then am I really fit to be a leader of a congregation at all? 
If this sounds like I am putting myself on a pedestal, then I would call your attention to the current reality where I am giving you a teaching while I am literally standing above you on a pedestal. <laughs> Which is why after the trauma of the pandemic and the intense stress of the years that followed, I was in a severe state of depression. But I refused to go to therapy, or I re and I refused to consider any type of antidepressant, even though my wife graciously asked me to get help time and time again. As silly as this may seem to you, I justify this refusal for help by thinking things like, I'll bet Richard Rohr doesn't take antidepressants, and I'm sure Rob Bell doesn't go to therapy, which is particularly silly because in his books that I read, Rob Bell talks about going to therapy all the time. <laughs> and while I never would have shamed any one of my friends from the congregation for depression, medication, or therapy, I was not willing to extend that acceptance to myself. All because my ego thought real spiritual leaders do not take antidepressants. Predictably, I continued to get worse and worse until I had an emotional breakdown in front of two of my very good friends. In other words, if you were to chart my life on a mathematical graph, I was right here, at rock bottom. Here is where it finally became obvious to me that what everyone around me knew all along. I needed help, and for the first time, I was willing to accept it in my regards to my depression. One of my friends who saw me at my lowest helped me get in to, to an excellent primary care physician, and the best therapist I could ever ask for took me on as a client. And after hours and hours and hours of therapy and taking a prescribed antidepressant two times a day for two years now, I can honestly say that I am the happiest I've ever been in my adult life. My therapist told me that the reason I have depression is because I feel emotions more intensely than the average human being. This insight has helped me to make peace with my depression rather than trying to conquer it. After all, if anyone expresses to me that they appreciate the time when I shed tears with them in grief, or the time I cheered with them at a graduation, or the time we laughed for hours playing a ridiculous game, or the time I went on and on about how much I appreciated the excellent cooking, then I have to recognize that all of that excitement and joy and feeling and empathy is one and the same as my depression. In 40 years of my life, I want you to know that I have not conquered depression. I have made peace with it. I have found that this existence that God has given us is truly beautiful, even with all the depression I have endured. God met me here, in the last place I would expect. This is a backward story, which is what I have come to expect from the gospel of Jesus Christ which seems to constantly move in a backwards direction, but with surprising grace, with surprising compassion, and with surprising love. My friends, may you have the courage to journey inward and make peace with the suffering you have endured. And may you always remember you are loved by your creator unconditionally. Amen.